introduce our guest speaker for today. She is a rock star. We are so blessed to have her. She has tons and tons of experience under her belt doing pastoring and ministering and speaking. She is awesome, and we love her, and we're so glad that she's back here from Texas. Please give a warm Woodland Hills welcome to Shauna Bourne. I've always wanted to be a rock star. Thank you. I'm going to pick this up because that's going to bug me. Okay. Thank you, guys. Um, It is so good to be here. And I don't know if this is theologically correct or not, but I say we get extra brownie points in heaven for being here. We haven't escaped off to some warm climate yet. You know, I know it's spring break and a lot of people are off in Florida or Hawaii or whatever, but we are here. We are tried and true. So give yourselves a hand. Yourself on the back. Yeah. Uh, like Vanessa said, my name is Shauna Boren, and I love, love, love living here. I do. Even in the midst of the cold, last night we were chatting, and she's like, I am so sorry that. Um, you guys came back and we've had like the worst winter in, in like 30 years. And I'm like, yeah, someone should be sorry. I don't know what's up with that. While we were away, you guys had these mild winters and then we come back and here we go. But that's all right. I love living here. I love being um, a part of this community. I love being a, being a part of this body. So thank you for having me. Um, Revelation. I don't know about you, but whenever I would hear the word revelation growing up, um, and as I got old enough to kind of understand uh, that this was a book in the Bible, what I heard, the word association that came to my mind was um, a song. And it's a song from 1987. And I know none of you guys are old enough to know what happened in 1987. But there was a song by a group called R.E.M. And it was um, entitled, It's the End of the World as We Know It. And it was like this massive rock anthem, you know, and goes on and on. And he's like, you know, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. And um, that was a very popular song back in 87. And then when I got into be like in junior high and high school and was involved with youth group, um, DC Talk came out with this version of an older song, I believe was an older song, called Wish We'd All Been Ready. And that was kind of like our youth group anthem. And you guys, seriously, like whenever this song played, it's like I would repent and pray and ask for forgiveness for anything and everything that I could think of that I had done wrong. Because in this song, it depicts the, the stories and different illustrations of, you know, two people. Uh, two men walking up a hill and one of them disappears and the other one's just left there. And, and the, the tagline is, there's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. And so I, they would play the, this song and like it's like this massive altar call. I'm sorry, I didn't study and I said I did. And I'm sorry that I you know took the last cookie, whatever it was, <laughs> whatever the sin was, big or small. It's like, you got to get it all out there and get it confessed because, oh dear, if he comes and I I'm not ready, that would be really sad. And that's kind of the way I um, envisioned Revelation. That's what it meant to me. And, and in honesty, and in ignorance, I didn't know there was any other way to think about it. I didn't know there was any other way to picture it. And so fast forward, and, um, and I'm a young adult, and I'm engaged to be married, and I'm chatting with this guy, Scott, my fiance, and we're just talking about stuff, and somehow Revelation comes up. And he, like, out loud with his mouth says these words that he doesn't really hold the traditional view of Revelation, and in particular, the rapture. And I was absolutely just shocked. I 
I didn't know what to do with that. I thought, oh dear, do we have to call the engagement off? <laughs> I, I didn't, does this mean that we're unequally yoked? I had, I had never, ever, ever heard that you could think differently about it. Now, I know you're wondering, and I'm just going to let you all in on a little secret. We ended up getting married. Everything is fine. Been married for almost 16 years. I think it's going all right. I think we'll keep at it. I think we're going to be good. <laughs> that little uh, shocker didn't rock the boat too badly. So we're all well and good. So needless to say, I have not always had warm, fuzzy feelings when it comes to Revelation. And I really appreciate the fact that we're taking time in this series to kind of go over it. And we've called this series Rescuing Revelation. And um, the reason why that it's entitled that is because there are so many viewpoints and there are so many things that have been taught that instill more of the feeling I had of fear and um, intimidation. And we're rescuing revelation from those things. And as a minor point of review, I just want to let you know what we've been talking about up to this point because we're in week three. And if you guys have missed any of these um, uh, sermons, I encourage you to listen to them on the podcast or get them out from the bookstore. But we're rescuing Revelation from using this book in the Bible as a crystal ball of sorts to kind of predict the end times. We're rescuing Revelation from the idea that there are a bunch of codes that we have to decode, and we have to decode them the right way, because if we don't, oh boy, it's not going to be good for us. We're rescuing Revelation from that. We're rescuing Revelation from the typical picture of Christ's return. And um, the typical picture of him coming back, he's ticked off, he's ready to kick tail, take names. You've got some explaining to do if you're not quite lined up just right. He's a warrior and he's ticked and he's coming to take care of business. Kind of like this picture here. This is called Death on a Pale Horse and it's by William Blake. And this is a very famous picture. But this is kind of the image that many, not everyone, have had when we're talking about Revelation. And so we're rescuing Revelation from these kinds of things. We're rescuing Revelation from the idea that when Christ returns, he's coming back and he's roaring like a lion and he's looking to devour whatever gets in his way. We're rescuing Revelation from those types of things and those types of ideas. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your presence. It is so sweet and it is so life-giving. Father, thank you for... um, The idea that we are here, that we are together, that we can worship you freely, that we can learn about you uh, without any danger. Father, I thank you that you are in the midst of us. I thank you that you are at all the while you are at work, Father, um, in each and every heart, in each and every life, in every situation. I thank you for those that are physically in this room for what you're doing in their life. I thank you for those that are listening via podcast or by other means and what you're doing in their life. And Jesus, I just pray right now that your voice be spoken and heard and that your heart be revealed to us today. Thank you, Father, for being such a loving, amazing God with your eyes and your attention turned toward us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So instead, when we look at Revelation, when we look over the different verses and the different chapters in this book, We're going to do so through a different lens. Now, revelation is meant to reveal. That's what revelation means. It's it's a revealing. 
but we're not looking at it um, through the lens of revealing all the stuff in the end that you've got to try to figure out. Not that, but rather it is revealing the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. This is revealing the good news of who Christ is. Revealing the good news of what Christ has accomplished. The good news of Christ's heart for his people. For his people then and his people now. The good news of Christ's character. What he's about, what he's made of. The good news is what we look to discover when we look at this book, this revelation. And when we look through this lens, this lens of good news, of who Christ is and what Christ is about and what Christ has accomplished, when we do that, instead of, you know, um, anger and manipulation and, and conquering, when we put all that aside and we just focus on the good news of who Christ is, the good news of what his character is about, the good news of his heart toward us, we can see Jesus as the lamb who is slain. Jesus, mighty warrior, as the lamb who was slain. And Greg talked about this last week. If you remember, John was weeping. He was sad because he felt there were none worthy to open the scroll. And then the 24 elders came to him and said, we have found the one who was worthy. It is the lion of the lamb of Judah. Look and see. And so John turns and he's expecting to see this lion. And instead he sees this little lamb. And that's pretty cool. I mean, there's some obvious distinctions between a lion and a lamb. But I um, have not always been able to fully appreciate just what those distinctions are. I, yes, I'm from the South, but I am from a big city, and I know nothing about nothing about animals um, and how to raise them and, and what all that means. But I am married to someone who grew up on the farm and who grew up raising cattle and sheep, and he knows much about it. And I was reminded of our very first Thanksgiving as a married couple, and we went to spend Thanksgiving with his family, which meant we went to the farm. And it was really cool to see my husband interacting um, with his family and, and with the animals on the farm. It's a part of him I didn't normally get to see. And his father, my, my father-in-law, it was an amazingly caring farmer. He loved these animals. He loved his cows and his sheep. They were his babies. And he was just so attentive. And so that was a really cool thing for me to see. So imagine my shock when we're sitting down to Thanksgiving dinner and we're at the table it's not what you guys think, but we're at the table, and we're by the patio door, so it's glass, and um, you can slide open and come in and out, and I see these two guys walking by, and Pop, that's my father-in-law, is like, oh, yep, I'll go take care of it, so he hops up and goes outside to go chat with these guys, and so I'm like, hey, what's going on? What's, what's the deal? And Scott's like, oh, the sheep um, had uh, their lambs, and so they're here to buy a lamb, and I was like, that is so cute. That is so sweet. Like, I'm thinking they have a daughter or something, and it's going to be the family pet, or... That's not what it was about. That's not why they were buying a cute little lamb. So then and there I learned about what it meant for uh, lambs to be sacrificed. And that was just horrific to me, but that, that was just reality. So um, when we're talking about the lamb that was slain... 
I didn't have a good um, background or history or knowledge of that uh, until that experience. But the people in the first century to whom these letters were addressed, the people in the first century to whom that this stuff is being spoken to, they knew very well what that meant. They, this was their livelihood. This, they knew all about sheep and, and, and lamb. And he, they knew their imagination, their frame of reference was vastly different than mine. They knew that, for instance, sheep are very vulnerable animals. And when sheep have babies, they have little lambs. So lamb, sheep, same thing. They knew they were very vulnerable. Not only that, you guys, but um, sheep have to be cared for personally and very carefully. They can't um, eat on their own. Their food has to be monitored. Uh, Not only does their food have to be monitored, but what they eat has to be monitored. It has to be monitored because if it's out, if the food is out, the sheep will eat and eat and eat and eat. And they will eat till they die. They'll just keep eating. They won't know. They cannot self-regulate. They don't know when to cut themselves off. It's kind of like me with, you know, some chips and salsa. I will eat and eat and eat. Thankfully, I don't die, and I do regulate at some point. But poor, they just don't know how to regulate, and, so, and they have sensitive stomachs, and so it takes someone taking very special care of them. They have little legs without claws, so they can't kick or defend themselves. They don't have fangs to, to defend themselves in that way either. And uh, their wool is very, very heavy, and so you have to keep it shorn. And if you don't, the wool gets very, very thick. And they get very, very top-heavy. And then if they get wet, they get so top-heavy that they topple over. And then their little sheep legs are just kicking about. And they can't get up by themselves. So it takes someone to come and pick them up and turn them over so they'll be okay. They're just very fragile animals, and they need constant care. And so whenever this um, distinction between lion and lamb is made, for this audience in the first century, they fully got that picture. They fully got what that meant and what that looked like. And I think when we really envision that, envision what it means to be a little lamb, it kind of takes on a whole other dimension of this imagery. And so we're saying that Jesus is a lamb. He's come as the lamb who was slain. We're not saying that he's the lion that's coming to roar and devour. And if we are followers of Jesus, it would make sense then that we are the people of God. We are the church. And if we are the church, then we are supposed to try to emulate and become more Christ-like and display his character. And that means that we need to try to become more lamb-like in how we respond to things in this world. We're looking at Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, sets up where we are right now in the series. This is going to introduce to us the seven churches of which is the focus of our study today. So read, with this, read this with me here. I, John, your brother, and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Letters to the seven churches. 
In Revelation, these seven letters to these seven churches have been a very popular topic for preachers to preach on. Um, it's talking to churches, and so we can make uh, definite correlations between the church then and the church now. And there are some things that, you know, pertained then that we can glean from now today, too. So it makes sense that these have been very popular sources of preaching. We may find that we're even able to identify personally with some of their story. And so it makes sense that we could benefit from what was written to them back then. But the problem is that these letters have typically, not always, but many times, been looked at in, uh, through the lion lens. They have been used through that um, vantage point. And they've been used to preach and talk about the end of the world and um, instilling fear. And it's, it's causing people to be motivated because of their fear. And they've been used in a very critical manner. They've been used in a very judgmental manner. People have taken these seven letters to these seven churches and really used it to, to beat up on folk, unfortunately, and really interpreted these letters as, you know, God laying down the boom to these seven churches. Um, there are even those who have kind of calendarized um, these seven letters to these seven churches and um, made them be that uh, each of these churches and each of these letters is a representation of an era or a period of time. You can kind of see that with this timeline, um, seven eras of the church. And so um, each church represents a certain period of time. And clearly, the seventh letter is where we are today. It's, it's from about AD 1900 until now. And so all of that that we read about in that seventh letter is pertaining to today's time, to today's church. And the problem with that is if, you, if you're looking at it through that lens, um, you have to admit and you have to realize that over time, this timeline has had to be tweaked and it's had to be adjusted because it hasn't always uh, lined up. I mean, people are kind of always guessing the timeline wrongly, so they have to readjust the timeline and represent it. So this is the way that things have typically been um, portrayed. And then all of that is leading up to this one big event called the rapture. And we got to make sure that people are rapture ready because we're in the, that last bit of time and we only have so much time left before it's all about to go down. And if we're not ready, it's not going to be pretty. And so that's kind of been the point of all of that. Now, I think that in order for us to see these verses differently that we're going to be looking at, it's important to know some background. And it's important to know some history and some context. Now, first, I just want to say that the seven letters to the seven churches were actual congregations of people, real, live people. This isn't um, an uh, imagery that was given. These were actual, real, live people living in first century Asia, okay? These were not make-believe people. Um, these letters were prophetic, and they were given by Jesus through the Spirit to John. 
And they were given to John because John knew these people. He knew these churches and these congregations. He was kind of like an overseer of sorts for these seven churches. And so he knew them personally. They were a part of one another's lives. They were a part of his history. They were a part of one another's stories. And so John was able to speak to situations that he saw in their lives because they had a relationship. That's really important to know. And um, during this time in the first century, many of these churches had already been experiencing persecution. Some of them had already had members of their congregation martyred. Um, Many were about to experience persecution. And so these letters are written with those things in mind as well. And John's emphasis throughout these letters is Christ's knowledge of these churches. Christ's knowledge of where they were, what they were about, and what they were experiencing. That Jesus sees them and that Jesus is aware of their situation. And it's against this backdrop that we take a peek at what was spoken to these churches. It's against this backdrop of Jesus being aware and Jesus seeing and knowing what's going on in their lives, not Jesus being angry and frustrated and ready to kick tail. No, Jesus being aware, Jesus seeing, Jesus caring. It's against that backdrop that we can take a look at what was spoken to these churches. These are words from a loving father. And this is where we kind of reframe it and look through the lens of the lamb. These are words of a loving father to his people during the first century. And it's as if he is saying to them, understand who you are in the midst of all of this. Understand who you belong to truly in the midst of all of this. Understand what you're about. Understand that I am with you that I have not forsaken you. Understand that you are a part of something that will be known throughout history. Understand your contribution. Don't lose sight. Don't grow weary in well-doing. I kind of like to envision God the Father and Jesus the uh, Son and the Holy Spirit all together and just looking down upon these churches and just encouraging them and saying, we see you. We know where you're at. We know what's happening to you. We know that you're being faithful. We get the hard times. We understand there is a struggle, but just keep on and have faith and persevere. Be encouraged in knowing the very things that you are experiencing, that you are going through, will be known throughout history, and it will be used to encourage others. I just envision them just having this little um, encouragement rally over these seven churches during this time. And that brings me to something that I think um, is really apropos and that will help us transition into what we're talking about specifically for us today. But there's this clip from a movie, um, from the Dead Poets Society, and um, it's just an encouragement that I think is really, really relevant for us today. So take a look at this. We don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion. Medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance.
romance, love. These are what we stay alive for. To quote from Whitman, Oh me, oh life of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish. What good amid these, oh me, oh life? Answer, that you are here, that life exists and identity that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. That the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? That the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. You see, the seven churches, these seven congregations, were a part of a kingdom story. And they had a contribution. They got to contribute a verse. And I want to say to us today, we too are a part of the kingdom story. And we get to contribute a verse. We get to choose how we will participate. We, will, we get to choose how we will respond. We get to choose the part of our story, this kingdom story that we're living out. And so as we look at these churches and as we look at some of these letters that, was spoken, that were spoken to them, we're going to be asking ourselves the overarching question, what will your verse be? When we look at situations that they were facing and we relate that back to our situation, we will ask ourselves the question, what will your verse be? First, we're going to look at Smyrna. Now listen, um, there are seven churches, like we've said, and there are seven letters. And if we delve into each letter um, to each church, we'd be here all day. Your children would be hungry. Mama needs to eat lunch. And so we don't, we're not going to do that. But what we are going to do is highlight three of these churches, and it will give us a good overview of the point. Now first to Smyrna. Smyrna was a city that was actually very wealthy during this time, and they had become a leading site for emperor worship, um, but there was a strong congregation, a strong church there. Now, the city was very wealthy, but the church itself was not. They, with, against worldly standards, they were not seen as very wealthy at all. They were actually seen as poor and needy. And so it's interesting that this church that was poor and needy hears this from the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church of Smyrna writes, there, These are the words of him who was the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. This is a church who is experiencing great suffering. They were poor financially. They were being persecuted by others. They were being thrown into prison. And God's word to them was, I see you. I know your afflictions. I know that you are seen as poor and living in poverty, yet you are rich because of your faithfulness. You are rich because of your faith and in your endurance. 
They were victims of slander and verbal abuse, but there was still a promise of victory that came to them. And where would this victory come? Was the victory in the fact that they weren't going to be persecuted? Was the victory in the fact that they weren't going to be imprisoned? No, because we know that they were, and they um, had been and would continue to be so. But the victory comes through the fact that Christ died and rose again. Because he lived, because he went to the cross, because he died, and because he rose again, the victory, the battle had been won. And that same victory, that same um, resurrection life was available to these people who were suffering in Smyrna to this congregation of people who were poor and didn't have very many means and were being persecuted, in the midst of their suffering, God was saying to them, I see you, I know your afflictions, but don't grow weary because the victory is coming and the victory is already yours. The victory has already been won. You may not be experiencing it yet. You may not see it yet in the midst of your suffering, but know that you're not alone. Know that you are not alone, that you will not be uh, just led along this path for nothing. Know that the victory is coming and your faithfulness will win out in the end. This church needed this letter. This church needed to hear in the midst of all the crud that they were going through that the victory was right around the corner. They needed to know that the victory was theirs, that the lamb who was slain paid the price already and they get the benefit of that. It's important to know God's heart in the midst of suffering. It's important for us today to know when things are not going right, when we're in the midst of our own hell, when we're in the midst of of struggle, when we're in the midst of um, not understanding what's going on around us and we see pain or there's anger or or there are things that don't look very kingdom-like, we need to know God's heart toward us in the midst of suffering, just like this church did. And through the letter, Christ said to them, I know your afflictions, I see your suffering, but don't worry, I am there. There with you and victory will come. And he says that to us today. He says, I know you. I see you. I see what's going on around you, but this is not the end. This is not where your story concludes. Victory is yours. You can have it in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the pain or the anger or whatever it is, in the midst of suffering, God's heart is toward you. God's heart is for you. And God desires to be with you in the midst of that. And so we ask ourselves, what will will our verse be? What will our verse be in the midst of suffering? What will we trust? What will we rely upon? We can rely and trust upon the lamb who was slain right there in the midst, right in the middle of it all. He's not waiting for you to get through it. He's not waiting for it to end. He's right there in the midst of it. What will your verse be? We look next to the church in Thyatira. The city of Thyatira was probably the least significant of all the seven cities um, that these seven churches were located in. Um, But during the time when John was involved with them, uh, the city itself had uh, become a town of trades and crafts. And that's how people made their living, by offering their trade or their craft. And so it's important to note here that when um, the trades and the crafts, the way they functioned, the way they operated was there were groups of them that got together and they kind of formed kind of like a local union. And it was through those little local unions, they called them guilds, that um, 
these were where the social structure came, and, and this is how the artisans and their families were supported and received support, and this is just kind of, this is the social structure of how it ran in that town. And so there were a lot of social events in which people could come and, you know, perform their tr- craft or uh, their trade, and um, during these events, there were a lot of festive meals. These meals were sacrificed to pagan deity, and during these meals, many of which were for men only, there were women made available to these men. So this is kind of the setting in which this church was functioning. And so this is what um, is said to them, if you look with me here. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love, and your faith your service and your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. And then he goes on to talk about some things. And so Jesus saw their love, and he saw their faith in the midst of everything that was going on around them. He saw their service to one another, and he saw their perseverance through the midst of everything that was going on around them. But nevertheless, there were some problems. And as you read on, you see that they were tolerating some things. Um, They were allowing some things to go unchecked. They were misled to believe that one could follow Christ, the teachings of Christ, but also engage in some pagan practices as well, kind of mix the two up a little bit. But they were doing so for the sake of accommodation. They were doing so for the sake of survival. They knew that if they were to really stand up against some of those activities, that that their very livelihood was at stake. They wouldn't be able to participate in these um, guilds, and uh, they wouldn't be able to use their trade or their craft. So taking care of their family would be at stake if they took a stand and didn't compromise. Um, in, in order to not lose friendships within the community and their position in the trade guilds, a lot of them were allowing certain things to go unchecked and to happen. And it's understandable why. We know we can see why they were tempted by this economic pressure. But Jesus is saying to them, hey, look, I see you. I know your deeds. I've seen your faith. I've seen your perseverance. I've seen your service. I see your love. So let's not compromise. Let's not mix in some of this other stuff. Let's really be the kingdom people that you're called to be. Really follow the teachings of Christ and trust that Christ will provide. Trust that when you don't give into the compromise, that you're going to be okay. And that's a hard place to be. We can look back on them and think, oh, they should have done better. They shouldn't have compromised. But we've all been there, I'm sure. Maybe not to this extent or this exact thing. But man, there are times when it does seem like it'd be easier just to compromise just a little bit and not be the full-on kingdom person that we're called to be. But that's what Christ is saying to do. Don't compromise. You know what you're called to be. You know what's in you. You know what I've called you to. Trust that I will provide. Trust that when you follow the ways of Jesus, trust that provision will be there. Trust that you're going to be taken care of. Trust that you're not going to be left in a lurch. I heard this really incredible story this week of um, a guy in, in a church in Southeast Asia. And I cannot say which country within Southeast Asia because this is currently going on right now. And there is actual persecution going on right now. And so, but basically this man was an iman. An iman is a leader in the Muslim faith. And so he was an iman for several, many, many, many years. And at the age of 65, this iman 
accepted Christ and became a follower of Jesus. That meant that he lost his job. That meant that he lost his pension. That meant that he lost his livelihood. But his testimony is that all of that is not even of of consequence to him because he knows the truth. He's living in the life and the love of Christ Jesus. He is willing to sacrifice those things which the world would say, oh my gosh, he needs. He was willing to sacrifice his reputation, his standing within the community, something that he had stood for for a very long time, his leadership, all for saying, no, I see truth, I see the love and life of Christ, and I'm going to follow that. And all this other stuff, it's worth losing because I trust Jesus, and I trust Jesus will provide. What will your verse be when you're faced with compromise? Will you trust the lamb that was slain? Will you trust that the provision will come? Will you trust that, that God has got your back, that you won't be left all alone to figure it out? Will you trust that there is victory that is to be had, there is victory to be yours if you just follow what you know the kingdom of God stands for, if you just follow what you know God is saying to you, trust him to provide for you, trust him to be there with you? What will your verse be? Our final church we're going to look at is uh, the one in Laodicea. Now, these verses um, have been used um, to communicate um, some very interesting things traditionally. These are the verses that talk about being hot or cold or being spewed out of God's mouth. Um, I have not found those verses to be very encouraging. I have not found them to be very life-giving, and so quite honestly, I've struggled with them uh, previously. I just could not understand why, if being hot is so fantastic as I was taught, and being cold meant you were wretched and and didn't have any worth, why would um, Jesus say, I'd rather you be that than be lukewarm? I just didn't get it. It wasn't life-giving, and it wasn't affirming, so I just never quite knew what to do with that. So in studying for this, I was really um, struggling with that, and I just really sensed the Father say, trust my heart on this, trust me, and just study and see what comes up of it. Now, Laodicea, as a little background, was a premier city, boasted many resources, very wealthy, um, amazing wool, and great medical school for that time. Um, And so they appeared to have the reputation of just being very, very sufficient and didn't need a thing. In fact, there was a time when an earthquake came and and demolished part of the city. They didn't ask for governmental help. They just said, nope, we got it taken care of. We can rebuild on our own. They were very self-sufficient. And the problem is, is that they had bad water. They did not have their own water supply. So they had to pipe in their water from hot springs, or they had to uh, get it from the mountain springs. The water they would get from the hot springs was what? Hot. The hot water was used to create medicine, and the hot water was used for bathing. The cold water they would get from the mountain was cold and refreshing, and they would use that for drinking. Now, by the time the water got to them, it had to travel, it had to be piped in. So when it got to them, it was lukewarm. It was tepid, so they couldn't use it right away. They had to do some work to get the water to where it needed to be so it could be used for the proper purposes. 
Now, if you have been blessed by the traditional um, um, teachings about hot and cold, and Jesus spitting you out of his mouth, if that's blessed you and encouraged you, yay. If it hasn't, if it's kind of made you wonder what the heck, and if it's made you kind of afraid and scared and, and not feel very loved, throw it out the window. Because to this body of believers in the first century, they knew exactly what was being said here about the water. The water takes work to make it useful because we don't have it the way we need it when we get it. And so they understood that. Let's see what's being said here. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich and I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. The church in Laodicea considered themselves rich and well-attired and healthy because of the city that they lived in. But what we see is they didn't realize that they were really poor and naked and blind. The reason why they were poor and naked and blind is not because of some great sin of not being hot nor cold or anything like that. The reason why they were really seen as cold and uh, as poor and naked and blind was because they had shut Jesus out of their lives for their own self-sufficiency. With their own self-sufficiency, with their own dependence on themselves and their stuff and what they had, they had essentially shut Jesus out. They had closed the door to him because they can do it on their own. They had things going well. Um, they had everything figured out. They had everything they could ever need. They lived in a wealthy city. They had the finest wool. They had a medical school. They were able to get their water from other places, and they didn't really display a need for Jesus and his teachings. They didn't really seem to be caring and, and, and displaying need for one another. And what we can learn from that today, I believe, is this. I think God is saying, hey, you guys, don't become so self-sufficient that you don't look to me. Don't become so self-sufficient that you don't look to one another. Don't shut yourself up in, a, in, in your little... Um, palace of security because you've got what you need, all that you need, and just think that you're good to go. When life is rolling good and you feel blessed, what will your verse be? When things are going well and you don't have struggle and you're, and you're well taken care of, you've got enough food to eat and you've got enough money in the bank and you've got all that you think that you need, what will your verse be? Will you allow God to be with you in those joyous and good and prosperous times? Or will you be so self-sufficient that you don't even realize that you've shut him out? What will your verse be? I believe that God is saying to us, don't think that you can go at this alone. Let me in. I want to come in. I want to be there. I want you to not be complacent. We need to work at this relationship. Just like they had to work to get the water to be useful, we need to work at our relationship with God. And all I mean by that is this. We need to rely upon one another as kingdom people and as a community. We need one another. That's a part of working in our relationship with God. Not only do we need to, to pray, and not only do we need to study, and not only do we need to 
seek his face and learn all that we can of him, but we also need one another. We need to be a community. We need to be brothers and sisters. We need to be strong when others are weak. And when we are weak, we need to let others in and let them be strong for us. We need not be self-sufficient. We need not pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and think that we can go at this alone. We need to invite others in and we need to invite Jesus in because he's knocking and he's saying, hey, you're my kid. I love you. I want to come in and I want to do this thing with you. It's going great. Awesome. I want to be there for that. You're struggling. That's fine. Admit that. Let me in. Let me be there for that. We are not meant and not wired just to be self-sufficient and going at this alone. We need one another. We need him. We need to open the doors of our hearts. Let people in. Let God in. Let the love of Christ in and then give that out to others. We got to close it up, you guys, but I just want to say really quickly one last thing. If we learn anything from the revelation of Christ Jesus, it is this. He was all-powerful. All power had been given to him under heaven and earth, it says. He was all-powerful. But what he did with that, with that power was he laid it down. He became a slain lamb. What he did with that power was he took to the cross, and he died, and he rose again. What he did with that power was to make himself a servant to all, to wash feet, to accept and embrace those who were outsiders, to accept and embrace those who had no position, no authority. He became love to the unlovable. He became light in the darkness. The one who was all-powerful, who very well could have come in and just swooped it all out and taken care of all the bad and just made it all good. No, he came as a little slain lamb. And we will overcome as he overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. We will overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. The testimony of who Christ is. The good news of what he has done. The good news of his character and his heart toward you and toward me. The good news about the victory that we have in Jesus because he has already won the battle. In the midst of where we are, in the midst of what we're going through, in the midst of whether it's great or bad, he is right here and he's, he's spurring us on to victory because he's already won the battle. I got to close it up. We have to go. The kids are waiting. But you guys, I just want to encourage you with this. Don't mix lion and lamb. We can't have it both ways. You know, Jesus isn't something that we can read about in our DC or Marvel comics. He's not, you know, Clark Kent by day and Superman by night. He's not Peter Parker and then Spider-Man. You know, he's not uh, Bruce Wayne and then the Hulk. And for you ladies out there, he's not Diana Prince and then he's Wonder Woman, you know, really going to come and take care of business. No, Jesus is the lamb that was slain. Let him be that and see the beautiful power in that. See that, accept that, live that, and go in that strength and go in that power. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your revelation. Father, I pray that you would be so real, so, so, so real to us. This day and the next and the next and the next and moment by moment, God, that we would be aware of you and that we would embrace you and we would be your kingdom people, that we would truly be living out the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Help us to see it, Lord. Help us to walk it, Lord. Help us to help one another and look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, you guys, the, um, 
Prayer people are going to be up here if you need it. Please, like I said, don't go at this alone. Come, get prayer, get support, get help. Thank you all so much. Go out and build the kingdom.